You're listening to the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast coming to you from the heart of Honolulu. Hui Kala is a committed family of faith that loves Jesus and loves one another. Tonight, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. And one of my favorite passages of scripture, one of my favorite uh, parables that Jesus shared. And of course, a parable is... Uh, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus would often use parables to communicate truth and to uh, help uh, stubborn listeners <laughs> learn something about God or learn something about himself. And, of course, Jesus was a master teacher. He knew how to tell stories really well. He knew how to drive that point home through the application of a story. And as we get into this story in Luke 15, it's actually a parable. It's one parable. But it's told in three parts. It's essentially the same parable, but just told three different ways, three different angles. Um, and you can pull a lot from, from this parable. There's a lot of application that can be found here. But there's one, there's one primary perspective I want you to keep in mind as we go through this. And we're going to find it right at the beginning of this story, of this parable, right at the beginning of Luke 15. And what I want you to keep in mind throughout this entire chapter, and we're actually going to survey the chapter tonight, what I want you to keep in mind is the context, where Jesus was and why he was telling this parable. Because the context of the parable is going to tell us a lot about the parable. Why did Jesus share this story? Well, it had to do with the people that were around him at the time when he told this parable, the time we told this story. So let's look at the context. It's found right in the first two verses. Luke 15 and verse 1, there are two groups of people in this story, in this context. Verse 1, then drew near unto him, unto Jesus, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. So here's group number one, publicans and sinners. Publicans were tax collectors. You remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? The wee little man, who was he? That, that song we used to sing back in Sunday school. That Zacchaeus was a publican. Matthew was a publican. He was a tax collector. People didn't like publicans. They were Jewish people, Jewish men, who worked for the Roman government, and they taxed the Jewish people. So they kind of went over onto the dark side, so to speak. They went over, they crossed over onto the other side and uh, worked for the Roman people, but they taxed their own Jewish people. And the way that they made their living, the way that they made their money is when they would tax whatever they could tax over and above their quota. Whatever was required of them, of the Roman government, they could keep. So they were known for the way that they cheated people. And the Jewish people couldn't really do anything about it because the Roman government was behind them. So publicans, people didn't like publicans. And then you've got the sinners. Boy, these are the marginalized and the outcasts of society. So the publicans and the sinners, they're drawing near to Jesus. By the way, Jesus was attractive. Something about Jesus was compelling. People like publicans and like sinners who were the marginalized and, and, and the outcasts of society, they wanted to be around Jesus. So on one side, group number one, you have the publicans and the sinners. Then in verse two, you've got the other group, the Pharisees and the scribes. And these Pharisees and the scribes, the Bible says that they were murmuring. That word murmuring has the idea of, of talking amongst the crowd. So they weren't just talking amongst themselves, but they were gossiping among the people. They were, they were murmuring and complaining amongst the people. 
And this is what they were saying. This man, Jesus, receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now go figure, right? Of all the things that could be said about you, it's not so bad to be known as somebody that spends time with sinners, especially if that's the whole reason why you came to earth, which was the case for Jesus. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day, they didn't like that. So group number one, here's Jesus. He's sitting down. He's having a meal with publicans and sinners. Now, in Jesus' day, to sit down and have a meal with someone was to identify with them. It was, it was to do life with them because a lot of things happened socially around meals. A lot of uh, conversations happened. A lot of talk happened. A lot of getting to know people happened around meals. So it wasn't just, hey, there was a spot at my table, pull up a chair, sit down and eat, and then be on your way. This was sit down, let's get to know each other, let's do life together, let's have a meal together. So Jesus was doing life with publicans and sinners. And then group number two over here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't like it. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the students of the Torah. The Torah is the Old Testament, the five books of the law. They, they, they really uh, prided themselves in how much they understood the law and how much they, they thought they knew God and how much they understood the teachings of the Old Testament. So this is the context of where we're about to go in Luke 15. Group number one, Jesus is seated with publicans and sinners, doing life, having a meal. Group number two, the religious leaders of the day who, who, who understood, at least in their mind, understood the law, understood the Old Testament, understood the teachings of God, are over here complaining about it. So verse three, Jesus speaks this parable unto them. So the context of where we're about to go in Luke 15 is Jesus eating a meal with really bad people and the really religious people don't like it. That's the context. Keep that in mind as we survey this chapter. Let's have a word of prayer together and then we'll dive in. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather in your church, in your name, to sing your praises together with your people. Thank you for what you did in our hearts this morning. Thank you for what you've been doing this week and this weekend with, with respect to missions and with respect to really looking outside of the four walls of this church and seeing the need of people all around us. I pray that as we look into the life of Jesus, that you would help us to see how he prioritized people and then help us to go and do likewise. And we'll, we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the context. Jesus is sitting with some really bad people and some really religious people don't like it. So we get into verse 3. Jesus begins into this parable. Look at verse 4. Again, it's three parts, but essentially the same parable. Jesus begins and he says, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? So failure for this shepherd was not an option. It didn't matter how long it would take. It didn't matter how far he had to go. As a matter of fact, he was willing to leave the majority of his livelihood, the 99 other sheep. And, and the context here does not say that he left it with anybody. It doesn't say that he left it with another keeper. So he was actually willing to risk those 99 sheep to go after the one. And he was willing to go after that one sheep until he found it. And then, verse 5, when he hath found it, 
He layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And right there we see a beautiful picture of God, how he has placed us on his shoulders, how he bore our sin on his shoulders because we in and of ourselves could never get ourselves to God. So God had to come down to us and pick us up and place us on himself so that he could bring us back to God. And so the shepherd lays the sheep on his shoulders and he's rejoicing, verse 6, and when he cometh home. What a beautiful word, the word home. Think about home. Home is a place of belonging. It's a place of acceptance. We have really enjoyed our time here in Hawaii, but this is not home. We have enjoyed our hotel. It's just a, it's just a couple of blocks from the beach, but it's not home. Three weeks ago, we moved. So if I were to go back tonight to that old address at 45909 37th Street East in Lancaster, California, and if I walked in the front door and treated it like home, some people would look at me really strangely, like, what are you doing here? This is not your home. This is not where you belong. But home for us is now 2710 West Highland Street. I'm just really glad that I know that (laughs) because we've only lived there for a couple of weeks. But home is home. Why? Because it's where we belong. It's where our family is. It's where we are accepted. It's, it's where we can just simply be ourselves. And this shepherd brings this sheep back home to a place of acceptance, to a place of belonging. And then he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. He's beginning to make some application to this parable. And really what he's saying, again, in the context, he's sitting at this meal with these publicans and sinners, and he's looking at the Pharisees, and he's saying, there's joy in heaven over one sinner more than the 90 and 9 that don't need repentance, more than the 90 and 9 that think they're okay. There's greater joy, there's greater rejoicing in the one. He continues in verse 8, he goes to part 2 of this parable. Either what woman, having, hang on a second, my iPad got kind of messed up because of one of our boys, so now I have to turn it sideways to read the Bible. (laughs) Here we go. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, If she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house, seeking diligently, once again, just like the shepherd, till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth all her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. This woman was willing to light a candle. Now, you have to understand, oil in those days was very costly. It was very expensive. You didn't just flip a switch and you got light. You had to light the oil. You had to light the wick, and the oil would keep that that fire burning, and that oil was very expensive, and so it was saved for very special occasions. But this woman was, was willing to spare no expense to find that coin. And that was not just a base metal. The, the, the Greek word there is drachma. It means, it means a precious silver, a precious metal, not just an iron or a lead. She was willing to do whatever was necessary so that she could find that one coin that was lost. 
But then Jesus continues. And he goes down. Look at verse 11. Sorry, my iPad's being a little glitchy again. Verse 11, he begins into the third part of this story. And he begins into the part of this story that we've often called the story of the prodigal son. And this, this story very well may be the most famous story that Jesus ever told, the story of the prodigal son. But, again, we want to keep in mind the context. And in the context, I don't believe that this story is primarily about the son, the younger son. As a matter of fact, there's two sons, as we'll see in a moment. It's not about the younger son. It's not really even about the older son. It's actually more about the father. Because what Jesus in this story is trying to teach both the publicans and the sinners and the Pharisees is what the heart of God truly looks like. Because what the heart of God truly looks like is probably not what the publicans and sinners think, and it's probably not what the Pharisees think either. Look at verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now you have to understand, for the son to do this, for the son to say this to his father, he was, he was in essence saying, Dad, you are as good as dead to me. Because he was asking for his inheritance. And in order for him to receive his inheritance, his father would have to be dead. His father would have to die. This was a very disrespectful request of this younger son. And the Pharisees who were listening to this story would have cringed that the younger son asked that. As a matter of fact, it, it would have been common for, for, for the younger son, if this had happened, for him to have been stoned for that request. He was saying, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. He wanted to go out and do what he wanted with it. But look at what it says. And he divided unto them. Who's them? The two sons. We're going to come back to this, but it's important to remember that both sons in this story get their inheritance at the same time. The younger son as well as the older son. Look at verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance. The word prodigal is not found in this passage, but the word prodigal means wasteful. He wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Some might look at this passage and say, boy, this boy deserved this famine. This is the judgment of God. I would actually argue that that's the grace of God. That it's the grace of God that allowed this natural disaster so that this boy could, could, could begin to turn his heart back toward God. So that, so, that, so that this boy could begin to look back toward home and toward the goodness and the graciousness of his father. But the boy... His immediate thought, his immediate response is not to look back to his dad. His immediate response is to try to fix his own problem. Look at verse 15. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, this is a Jewish boy. You know anything about Jewish law and Jewish customs? They didn't spend any time around pigs. They didn't even eat pork. It was an unclean animal. So here he is, a Jewish boy in a foreign land, which would have been looked down upon, serving a foreign master in a pigsty. 
around unclean animals. And the Pharisees, boy, they just would have, they would have detested this story. They would have detested this younger son as Jesus was speaking this parable to them. Verse 16, and the boy, and he would, he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, and that's a beautiful phrase. I don't know why, I don't know how long it took, but at some point, the boy's mind began to think back to his father. And the first character trait that he remembers, or at least that's recorded that he remembers about his father, is his father's goodness. Because he thinks back to his dad, and when his thoughts begin to go back to his dad, it says, when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with my hunger. He's saying, my dad's servants, not only do they have enough to eat, but the servants have enough and more than enough. They have enough to spare. And so he begins to get this idea. He says, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, which was true. The Pharisees would have been nodding their head as Jesus spoke this story. They would have agreed with this. Verse 19, the the boy continues, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. The Pharisees would have continued nodding. They would have agreed with that statement. But here's the thing. Our worth was never based on what we did or what we do. Our sonship, our our daughtership, our, our, our standing as a child of God was never based on what we could do. We've got three boys, one on the way. Um, a lot of things get broken in our house. That's just kind of normal everyday activity for us. You know, the, door, the, 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 the boys will slam the door, and it'll, it'll put a hole in the drywall. So I'll fix the drywall. And as soon as I get the drywall fixed, they slam the door again, and there's a hole in the drywall again. They break things. They break screen doors. They scratch things. They dent things. Our car is not very glamorous. Things get dirty. Things get broken. Things get destroyed. But never one time have I gone to one of my children and said, Son, what you did, that was the last straw. You are no longer worthy to be called my son. Now, I've been tempted. I'll be honest. I've been very tempted. But no, I wouldn't say that to one of my boys because because their standing, their position in in, in the relationship with me and in the family, it's not based on what they do. It's not based on what they've done. It's not performance based. It's birth based. And you and I, as children of God, we don't ever have to go to God and say, God, I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. God looks at us and says, you were never worthy in the first place. Jesus was worthy for you, and that's why you became my child. You were born again into my family. So your value is through Jesus. So if you can never, if you can never enter into the family of God based on your worth and based on what you do, then your standing and your position in the family of God is never based on what you do. It's never based on how you perform. But somehow, and when we get into a position like the prodigal son here, when, when, we, when we start to go down a road and when we start to make bad decisions, uh, the, 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 the accuser starts to whisper into our ear and he starts to say, hey, you're not worthy of that name Christian. 
what you did, you're not worthy of, of, of being a child of God. And we begin, to, we begin to believe that. But we need to realize that that's not the way we should think as a child of God. We are worthy because Jesus is worthy, and I am in Christ, and positionally I am received, and I am accepted, and I am loved unconditionally, no strings attached by Jesus Christ. But the boy writes this little speech, and he begins his journey home to his dad. Verse 20, and he arose, and he came to his father but when he was yet a great way off. Think about those two phrases. And came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off. In all of his effort, in all of his striving, in all of his trying to bring himself back to God, it still fell short. So what did God or what did the father have to do? He had to go to him. So when he came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, which means he was looking for him. He was expecting him. He was looking out over that horizon, waiting for the silhouette of his son. And as soon as it appeared, he had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Immediately runs to him and embraces him. You have to understand, Jewish men did not run. It was undignified. But this was a crazy, reckless love that this father had for his son. And he was so excited and he was so willing to rejoice, just like the shepherd, just like the woman who found the coin. This father ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him and welcomed him home. What an amazing display of grace. It was probably a little awkward for that son. You ever met someone who's not really good at hugging? You know, like maybe your culture, you hug a lot. Uh, and there's just a lot of that embracing, but maybe you meet somebody that's not really their culture. You know, so they give you a hug and they don't really know what to do. You know, it's this awkward embrace. You know, grace can feel a little awkward sometimes. when God embraces you because you, you, you begin to feel like, I don't deserve this. And you're right. If it feels too good to be true, it's probably grace. Because grace is too good to be true. And for this boy, being embraced by his father, it was probably this awkward moment, this awkward reunion, like, why is he doing this? Why is, why is he responding to me this way? This isn't what I expected. I didn't expect him to, to run to me, and to embrace me. So he pulls out his little speech from his pocket assuming he had pockets. And he begins to read it off to his dad. Verse 21, And the son said unto his father, the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. But his dad doesn't let him finish. He doesn't get to the hired servant part. His dad cuts him off. And he goes on there, and his father says to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and the best robe would have belonged to the father. The best robe would have been his own. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And what a beautiful picture of our relationship with God. 
Because Isaiah says that God has clothed us with the garment of salvation and has covered us with the robe of righteousness because the robe that we have been covered with is the Father's robe, His righteousness, His goodness, His perfection, His holiness, His sanctification has been imparted to us. So now we are holy and now we are perfect and now we are sanctified because we are wearing the robe of the Father. We are wearing the best robe. And the ring, the, 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 the signet that would have identified that son as being a member of that family was placed back on his finger. And you and I have been sealed with the signet of the Holy Spirit of God. And because of that spirit, you can never lose that sonship. You can never lose that daughtership. And shoes have been placed on our feet because only slaves went barefoot. And we are not slaves. We are now sons and we are brought back into the family of God. Even after our greatest mistakes, God embraces us and welcomes us home. What a beautiful picture of God and his love and his grace. About this time, as Jesus is telling this story, you can probably just picture in your mind's eye that some of those publicans and some of those sinners who are having that meal with Jesus thinking, man, what a father. What an amazing grace. I wonder if that, if, if that would be given to me, too. I wonder if I could be a partaker of that. As I, I actually, as I, as I sit with this teacher, this Jesus, I'm, I'm beginning to sense and feel some of that kind of acceptance that he knows me, but he still accepts me. He knows my faults, but he still receives me. You begin to imagine that some of those publicans and sinners are beginning to see that that story is really about them the ones that Jesus is sitting with, having a meal with. But the story's not done. There's another son in the story. And again, we've got to keep in mind the context of Jesus with the publicans and sinners, the really bad people, the really the, the outcasts of society, the rejected ones. And then on this side, the religious crowd that knew the, knew the law, knew the Torah, and were students of the Torah and lived a very clean and upright and moral life. Luke 15, verse 25, Jesus continues, Now his elder son was in the field. Huh. What was he doing in the field? Because he had received his inheritance at the same time as the younger son. And he was the older son, so he would have received the greater inheritance. As a matter of fact, he would have owned the field. He would have received the estate as the older son. But he's laboring in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he calls one of the servants and he asks what these things meant. Verse 27, and he said unto him, thy brother is come. And thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. Look at the response of the older brother. He was angry. He was furious. And he would not go in. He wouldn't go into the party. He wouldn't go into the celebration because going into that celebration was recognizing that his younger brother was alive. And he was not willing to recognize that his younger brother was alive. In his mind, his brother had, had hurt the family name, had disowned the family, had disgraced his father, 
And his younger brother was no longer alive in his mind. He was gone. He was out of existence. And he was not willing to receive him like the father. Verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 28. He was angry and he would not go in. Therefore came his father out and treated him. So the father comes out of the celebration and he says to the older son, come into the party. Come into the celebration. Join me in rejoicing that your brother has come home. Verse 29, and he answered and said to his father, he doesn't even respond to that, to that, to that request. He says, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> his father had just said, Hey, would you come in? And he says, No. And then he says, I've never disobeyed you. Okay. But you won't come in like your father just entreated you to do. So his father tries to get him to come in, and he says, no. He says, I've served you these many years, and I've never disobeyed you. Not one commandment have I missed. Not one law have I forsaken. Not one jot, not one tittle has been missed of the law. I've kept it all. I've served you. He was mad. Yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son. He won't even call him his own brother. As soon as this, thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots. That wasn't in the story. Now there's the embellishment. Thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, son, this is beautiful. Thou art ever with me. And all that I have is thine. Son, you had full access to me, to the estate, to the robe, to the ring, to the fatted calf. You could have thrown the celebration whenever you wanted to. All that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And that's the end of the chapter. We really don't know how the Pharisees respond. Jesus leaves just this open-ended parable, this open-ended story, as if to say, what will you do with this? How will you respond? There's a lot that we can learn. But there's three truths I want to point out tonight that I believe Jesus was emphasizing in Luke 15. Three truths. Number one, Jesus wants his passion to be our passion. Jesus wants his passion to be our passion. What was the passion of Jesus? Luke 19, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man has come for publicans and sinners. Publicans and sinners. And by the way, he was demonstrating that in the first verse of Luke chapter 15. That's where he was spending his time. The mission of Jesus was people. This is a missions conference, a missions weekend. What is, what is missions all about? People. The mission of Christ is people, so the mission of the church should be people. And it really doesn't matter so much if they're your neighbor or if they're halfway around the world. 
you don't have to you, you don't have to travel halfway around the world to be a missionary. You can be a missionary tomorrow at your workplace. A lot of you are probably off tomorrow. But your neighbor at your barbecue, wherever you might be, you're hanging out on the beach tomorrow, whatever you're doing, that's your mission field where God has placed you. Because you know what Jesus was doing? He was just doing life with people. He was just spending time in everyday activity, having a meal seated with people. And in the midst and in the course of that conversation, he's telling a story that's drawing those people to himself. And so what are we to be doing? As followers and disciples of Jesus, we're just to be living out that same kind of mission. We're to be living our life in such a way that people are drawn to Jesus. Allowing his passion to be our passion. Our church, this church, the City Point Baptist Church, our dream for what we are going to plant in Tempe, Arizona, is that it would be a church where people can come, where people are welcome, where where people, it doesn't matter if they've been in church and they should know better, that they're still embraced and they're welcomed back home. Church should be home. It should feel like home. Just like when we get on that flight tomorrow night and leave Hawaii, as beautiful as it is, And when we land sometime on Tuesday morning and we pull back up into our driveway and walk into our front door, that is home. It feels like home. It's where we belong. It's where we can be ourselves. When someone walks into the doors of this church, it ought to feel like home. It ought to feel like they never left. It ought to feel like this is just a family. There ought to be those intangibles that just point to that, that draw them to it. It just feels right The people here aren't fake. The people here are being real. The people here have their own burdens and trials just like me, and they're just welcoming me into the family. And that's what it ought to feel like. Just like the shepherd brought that sheep back home, just as the father ran to that son and brought him back home. May our churches be a place where sinners and publicans can come home. When his passion is our passion, we'll be willing to take incredible risks. We'll leave the 90 and 9 to go after the 1. We'll we'll be willing to spare no expense if it means burning that expensive oil. It won't matter because we, we want to spare no expense until we find that lost coin, until we find that lost sheep. When his passion is our passion, we will welcome the prodigal. Relationships can be pretty vulnerable and pretty messy. People can have some pretty serious problems. But the reality is, all of us do. And we have been welcomed by the Father. And so now we can welcome others back to the Father. Jesus was was emphasizing this truth that we as the church should keep his passion as our main passion and priority. And that passion was for people. Number two, the second truth that I believe Jesus was emphasizing was really a warning. And that was this, don't start thinking like a Pharisee. Don't allow the thinking and the thought process of a Pharisee to creep into your heart, into your mind. The reality is, when I read this story, and when I get to the second, the older son, I kind of start to identify with him. I'm like, yeah, I think I'd be angry too. (laughs) I mean, come on. I mean, the guy was doing doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was living a good, moral, upstanding, clean life. He was serving in the field, wasn't causing any problems. I mean, I think I'd be a little upset, too, if I didn't get. Oh, wait a minute. I'm starting to think like a Pharisee. That somehow 
I am better than the prodigal. Because really, there are two types of sinners in the world. Those who know they are lost and those who think they are righteous. But both are equally as sinners, (laughs) equally as lost. And the thing is, the publicans and the sinners, they knew they were lost. I mean, they never refuted the title sinner. That's how they were known in society. Those were the worst of the worst. Those were the lowest of the low. They knew they were lost. They knew they were sinners. And then there are those who think they're righteous, who, who look at their works and look at how they keep every letter of the law, and they point to that as to why they get angry at those people because they're not keeping the law and they're not serving in the field and they're not doing what they should do and they ought to know better. And all of a sudden, that thinking of a Pharisee begins to creep into our hearts. And if we were honest, every one of us have a little bit of a Pharisee in us. But Jesus is asking the Pharisees one very significant question. That is this. Will you rejoice with me that these publicans and sinners have come home? He's over here seated at the meal looking at the publicans and sinners, and essentially he's saying, will you rejoice with me that these publicans and sinners are coming home? This older son was living beneath his privileges. He was a son. He was busy doing rather than being. He was working for relationship rather than working from relationship. There's nothing wrong with serving. This isn't a message about just, you know, be lazy and don't do anything in church. But we need to be careful that even as we serve, that it is a heart and a response of worship. Pastor King mentioned it this morning, that worship is a lifestyle. And so whether it's children's or whether it's a parking lot or whether it's a greeter or whether it's somebody handing out a cup of coffee or a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord or whether it's somebody passing out a a, a gospel pamphlet in, in the streets or to a neighbor or to a coworker, don't do that thinking that that earns you greater standing with God. You can't get any greater standing with God than you already ha- than what you already have in Christ. You are fully accepted and fully welcomed and fully received through Jesus Christ. So now in a position and from a position of full and total and complete acceptance, love and serve God. From that position, from that relationship, not for the relationship. See, the older son was trying to earn something. That's why he got angry. And he he looked at his dad and he pointed to his works and said, the works, this is why I'm mad because I've served you all these years and you've never done something for me. And the dad's like, since when is that how our relationship works? All that I have is thine. I am ever with you. There are a lot of Christians today who are living beneath their privilege as a child of God. God is looking at you, God is looking at me, and he's saying, I am ever with you. All that I have is thine. You don't have to prove anything to me. You don't have to do anything to earn more acceptance. You are accepted. You are loved and received. But this son was living beneath beneath his privileges. He was allowing bitterness to blind him to reality. He was mad at his younger brother. 
But what's also interesting about this older son is that he did not understand the love and the compassion of the father. You see what he did when he heard the music and the dancing? He didn't know what was going on. He called a servant. He said, hey, what's going on here? Why is there the music? Why is there the celebration? He really didn't understand the heart of the father. Because if he had understood the heart of the father, he would have heard the music, he would have heard the celebration, and the first thought that would have popped into his head would have been, my younger brother's home. I know dad, and if there's a celebration going on, my younger brother came home. But that wasn't his first response. And Pharisees have a really hard time with the love and the grace and the compassion and the heart of God. They have a really hard time with really bad people being loved and accepted back to God. They do. They have a hard time understanding and grasping that love because they think that somehow that love is something that you earn through your work and through your labor and through your service in the field. And so when someone doesn't do anything and they're fully accepted and fully loved, they have a hard time with that. And they don't understand it. They don't comprehend it. So what I would encourage you to do is look at your life today and say, has that thinking, has that thought process of the Pharisee crept in? Do I look at that person who comes back to church and they haven't been here for two years and I know what they've been doing and they know that I know what they've been doing? And do I start to think they should have known better and they shouldn't be here? Because if that's the way we think, then we're in group number two. We're thinking like the Pharisees. We're hearing the celebration and the dancing and the music, and we're thinking, what's going on? Why is there rejoicing? Why is there so much joy? When we should be saying, hey, let's welcome that one home. Let's embrace that one home. Let's receive them back into the church. Jesus is saying, number one, keep my passion your passion. Number two, Jesus is saying, don't start thinking like a Pharisee. We all have it in us. Be careful that that doesn't creep in. And then number three, I believe Jesus is emphasizing this, that the Christian life is all about relationship. The Christian life is all about relationship. It's the central theme of the Bible. If you take the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and look at the arc of it and look at the storyline of it, it's all about God bringing humanity back to himself. When you go back to the very first book, you see that God created mankind for himself, for relationship with him, and sin severed that relationship. The wages of sin is death. Death is separation. So sin separated us, first and foremost, from a relationship with God. What is hell? It is eternal separation from a relationship with God. It is, the, it, it is the ultimate absence of God. It is pain, it is suffering, it is torment, but it is hell primarily because Jesus is not there. What is heaven? Yes, there are streets of gold, there's pearly gates, there's, there's, there's great food. But that's not ultimately what makes it heaven. What, what ultimately makes it heaven is Jesus. Jesus is not a ticket to a destination. Jesus is the destination. It's all about him. It's all about relationship. And so mankind, because of sin, was separated from relationship with God. And so God sent Jesus to restore relationship. Jesus took our death. Jesus took our separation from the Father, and the Father turned his back on the Son so that you and I could be received back into relationship 
with the Father. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took our death, our sin, and our separation so that we would not have to. So that we could be restored to a relationship with God. And Luke 15 is a beautiful picture of God's relentless pursuit of relationship. Here's the truth. God is just as interested in the prodigal as he is in the Pharisee. The heart of God is the same for both. This isn't the father looking at the son, treating him differently, the older son, than the younger son. As a matter of fact, the older father is trying to entreat him and to bring him into the celebration and to help him to understand, I've always been with you and all that I have is yours. There's just as much grace from the heart of the father for the Pharisee as there is for the prodigal. That's the heart of God, the restoration of relationship. If you feel that your relationship is not what it should be or what it once was, don't sulk and hang your head and say, I'm not worthy to be called a son. God won't accept that line. He won't even let you get to the line because he didn't let the son in the story get to the line. He's going to say, no, 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 no. Your worth was never based on what you did. Your worth was always based on what my son did in your place. And so you are received, you are loved, you are welcomed, you are accepted because Jesus is home. He is the place of belonging. And so we've taken a survey of Luke 15. We've made some applications. We've looked at this story of the what's often called the prodigal son, but really it's the story of a father and two sons. But I think there's one more thing we need to see in this story. And that is that it's ultimately not a story of a father and two sons, but it's a story of a father and three sons. Because son number one was the prodigal who was wasteful, and son number two was the Pharisee who was living beneath his privilege, trying to live up to something that was already his. And son number three was the one telling the story. You see, son number three was Jesus. And Jesus was not like the prodigal because Jesus did not waste his life with riotous living. But Jesus came to fulfill the law of God and to be obedient to the calling of God. To not waste the inheritance, but to make us joint heirs with him. And Jesus was not like the older son who was trying, who was trying to, to try to measure up and earn something because Jesus had completely fulfilled that law so that you and I would not have to because we could not fulfill that law. And Jesus is not like the older son looking down his nose at the younger son saying he should have known better. But Jesus is the one who's rejoicing and celebrating with the father when the prodigal comes home. So Jesus is ultimately the center of this story. He's the third son. 
He's the one who keeps the passion of the, of the Father. He's the one who's willing to take incredible risks and did take incredible risks and left the 90 and 9 so that he could come down for you and for me, for the one. He, he was the one who was willing to rejoice and to celebrate, and he was the one who was willing to spare no expense and burn that oil so that so that, that coin could be found. And he was that father on that porch step looking out over the horizon, waiting for the silhouette of the sun to come over that horizon, and he ran in a reckless, outrageous display of love and mercy and grace to receive and to embrace the prodigal back to himself. And so he stands at the end of this story, and on one side is a group of prodigals, and no doubt their heart is burning for that third son. Their heart is burning to be received and to be welcomed home, just like the prodigal. And while we're not told, there's no doubt on the other side, the Pharisees are still justified. And they're still rationalizing why they feel the way they feel and why the way they feel is the right way to feel. But the heart of the Father is the same toward both. Have we lost the passion of God? The passion of the Great Commission? that great mission that has been given to us to share what we have received with everyone we come in contact with. Are we still a church that welcomes the prodigal home, that rejoices and embraces and runs to that one, even though they, quote, should have known better? Here's the reality. We all should have known better. And we were all received and embraced and welcomed. How's your relationship with Jesus? Do you feel like you're a little distanced from him tonight? If you are, come home. He's home. You won't be rejected. You are a son. You are a daughter. You don't have to try to re-earn something or prove your worthiness. You are worthy because Jesus is worthy. May we keep the passion of God front and center in our lives. And may Hui Kala Baptist Church always be the kind of a church that is a reflection of the heart of God found in Luke 15.